So I am Dr. Jeffrey D. Long. I am a professor of religion, philosophy, and Asian studies at Elizabethtown College, which is in Pennsylvania. My expertise is on the religions and philosophies of India and of Asia more broadly. Uh, I write uh, mostly on Hinduism and Jainism, but also some work uh, on Buddhism as well. And uh, I'm, my most recent work, uh, which is still in the process of uh, uh, coming together, uh, but uh, to be published soon, uh, is an introduction to Indian philosophy. When you say coming together, is the whole book done and handed off and now it's the back and forth with editors? Uh, so it's been sent for peer review. So okay. there may be some suggestions for things to edit, th things to add, things to remove. Or uh, this almost never happens, but maybe they'll say, great manuscript, just publish it like it is. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but usually there are some, some suggestions. Uh, hopefully nothing too drastic that would force me to you know, rewrite the whole book. Uh, I don't expect that. Uh, it actually went through, uh, I'll give you the, the full background story. Uh, I, I initially the, finished the first draft of the manuscript in 2017. Okay. And it went for peer review, came back. And there were, uh, I, I wouldn't say it required me to rewrite the whole book, but th there were some substantial suggestions uh, mm -hmm. for things to incorporate. I think that the person who did the blind review, I don't know who it was because it was a blind review, but I believe that that person was a scholar of Buddhism. And um, I won't say that I'm weak in Buddhism, but most of my work has been on Hindu and Jain traditions. So I think this person could see where there were things that I could say more about uh, Buddhism and clarify uh, on Buddhism. So uh, I did a bit more, uh, I did a bit of rewriting when it came to, to Buddhism and uh, resubmitted it. And it's now with peer reviewer again. And uh, I think another peer reviewer. So we'll see what that person says. But, uh, and when I, even though the peer reviewer didn't recommend, you know, radical reconstructive surgery, I took the opportunity to make some further changes of my own. Right? There were things I was myself not entirely happy with. I got to, you know, expand upon a few things and, and cut some things that I realized either weren't necessary or ended up getting repeated two or three times. You know, you write a long piece of work and you don't always remember, okay, I already talked about that on in chapter one. I don't need to mention it again here. So uh, it's the version that was sent to the peer reviewer this time is a, a, an improvement, I think, over the first one. So what I'm expecting is that whatever is suggested is not going to be too radical. It also depends on the reviewer. You know, you get reviewers who uh, uh, are very hard to please. You know, like they want you to write the book that they wanted to write, right? And sometimes you have to say, well, okay, that's really not a helpful comment and just let it pass. Uh, but I typically find peer review results in a stronger product. So I, I'm actually excited to see what the peer reviewer has to say. Hope it doesn't involve more than a week or two of, <laughs> of revision. Uh, and then Send it on because I'm I'm quite keen for it to be published. Uh, it, it's actually been in the works for a very long time. Uh, I initially this is embarrassing to admit that this book has been uh, it, it's going to come out I think a decade after it was originally intended to. So uh, I mean I've had three other books come out during the time in which this book was supposed to come out. So uh, that whole variety of reasons that happened. Uh, but as a result, I, I want to see it out. I, I'm, I'm quite eager for it to to be there. Uh, there are other introductions to Indian philosophy. You know, when you pitch a book to a publisher, one of the things you have to do is talk about the competition. It's like, why is my book better than these other books? Okay. Uh, I don't necessarily think mine is better, but it's, it's my take. And uh, I want that to be out there. And uh, because I do teach at a, I'm at a fairly teaching intensive college, I want a book that I can use in my Indian philosophy course. And I know what I want <laughs> in a book on Indian philosophy for my course. So I want that book to be there and uh, to be available. Okay. So this, this feels superficial, but I like the teaser description for the book so much. So I wanted to, I wanted to read it and then get your take on it because I think it raises a massive question about Indian philosophy <clears throat> that folks in the Western world with continental philosophy or Western philosophy don't consider. So this is how it reads. Contrary to widespread stereotypes, Indian philosophy is not simply an extension of Indian religion. Skepticism is a pervasive feature of this discourse, and there is even a school of thought which affirms materialism. 
The idea of a divine reality is debated extensively, not only in terms of the existence of such a reality, is there a God, but also in terms of its nature, what is God? So that whole, obviously, religion and philosophy do fuse in West, so-called Western traditions, but from Westerners' perspective, when you talk about Indian philosophy, they think exactly what you talked about at the top here. Hinduism, a religion. Jainism, a religion. Buddhism, not arguably a religion, arguably a philosophy, but religion and philosophy fuse together, whereas they're kind of pulled apart in modern philosophy. So is Indian philosophy religious? Okay, that's a fabulous question. And so, and, and it's, I, I wrote this teaser, so I, I know. Uh, oh, perfect. <laughs> no, I know what you're referring to there. So uh, part of the difficulty of answering the question is that the term religion itself is foreign to traditional Indian thought. And what I mean by that is uh, so if, if we unpack the whole history of the word religion, you've got the history of much of, in, of Western thought and much of Christianity embedded in that word. Because uh, you, know, you go back to the Romans, to Latin, religio, uh, refers mainly to a set of rituals that are believed to be obligatory and that are supposed to bind or connect us back to our ancestors, back to the past, back to what is broadly called the sacred uh, in the discourse of religion. And then uh, the idea that you have many religions, right, that it's a genus of which there are species that we call Christianity and Hinduism and Islam, that's a very modern idea. That's a very recent idea. To be religious for much of Western history meant to belong to a religious order, right? And you still hear this phrase in the Catholic Church. If you belong to the religious life, you're a Jesuit or a Benedictine or a Franciscan or something like that. And only with the Protestant Reformation and then coming quickly on its heels, the European uh, exploration and conquest of much of the planet, do you get the idea of religions in the plural, that there are people in China who have something that's not Christianity, but it's kind of like Christianity. And there are people in the Middle East who have something that's not Christianity, but it's kind of like Christianity. And you have people in India and who have it. So the, the concept of the world religions is born. And then we use that as a kind of basis for a sort of a taxonomy of, of traditions and civilizations. So and I want to interrupt one second, because yeah. I think that that taxonomy you talked about is used both in a secular academic way. So comparative religion, world religions. Yes. And also, like you mentioned, a lot of times it's apologetics. Like if you go into any Christian bookstore, there's a section devoted to here's how to understand other religions according to your religion and how to talk those people into your religion. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So, and so the, the whole missionary imperative of Christianity is there. And uh, part of what happened when this term religion came to be applied to a whole variety of other traditions is a lot of Christian assumptions got imported into uh, these traditions. So uh, if we say that a religion is something that's, well, kind of like Christianity, only not Christianity, the implication is, well, it has a supreme being, it has a holy book, there's some group of people who are responsible for propagating it, there's some gathering place where people meet on a regular basis to do sacred things. Uh, so, you know, you've got a scripture, you've got a church, you've got, you know, uh, a liturgy, all of these Christian terms. And those analogies often fail as an accurate description of tradition. So if we look at Hinduism, for example, so you'll hear it said that the Vedas are the sacred scripture of Hinduism. Now, that is both true and false. Uh, are they very important texts historically? Does the concept of that collection of texts play an important role in terms of defining uh, what is a Hindu tradition, what is not a Hindu tradition? Uh, yes. Do Hindus sit weekly together and do Veda study? Uh, and uh, quote from it word for word and, and uh, you know, chapter and verse? No, typically not. Uh, the people who would know it that well would just be the priests, and uh, they know it in the original language, Sanskrit, right? So uh, you don't have a lot of people in the West who know Hebrew or Koine Greek to be able to read the Bible in the original language. They know uh, the most ancient version many people will know would be the King James Bible, and that's only yeah. about 400 years old. So uh, if that, so, uh, so you have these disanalogies. 
And I, I read a really good doctoral dissertation recently on the Vedas that was arguing that if you have to project Western terminology onto the Vedas and the culture that the, in which the Vedas are deployed, it's much more like ceremonial magic. Uh, you're doing a ritual with the full expectation that it's going to bring about the result that you want, which is very different than praying to God for some divine grace, right? It's more like we do this and this happens. Uh, you, and, and there's there are schools of philosophy like the Mimansa school, which I describe in my book, which uh, is quite skeptical about the existence of divine beings. And you might say, well, but aren't divine beings mentioned in the Vedas and aren't the divine beings invoked in order to bring about results? And according to the Mimansikas, well, that's what the Sanskrit verses say if you interpret them. But what we know is that if you recite that verse correctly in the right order, in the right part of the ceremony, the result happens. Does it really mean anything? <laughs> we can debate that, right? It's <laughs> not that. Uh, and there are different schools of thought. So some will say that the uh, the, and this is within Mimansa, you know, there are deities, but they basically serve a, uh, almost like a subservient role, right, to, to the priests who, who know how to perform the rituals to get the, the, the devas, the deities, to do what they want. By the way, we're not talking here about the supreme gods and goddesses of Hinduism, right? We're not talking about Vishnu and Shiva, right? We're talking about the, the deities that represent natural forces like Indra, the, the, the storm god, and Surya, the sun, and, and so on. And so uh, the, these these are powers that are sort of commanded, in effect, by those who know how to do the ritual. And uh, so then you you have uh, other mimansikas who will treat the deities more or less as theoretical entities. It's like, okay, well, if we want to assume that the way the ritual works is as it's literally described, then yes, we have to postulate the deities. But that school of thought is not really about devotion to these deities or speculation about their nature or anything of that sort. Then you have other schools of thought, uh, Indian thought, that are quite different. Then you have the Nayayakas, and you will find many resemblances between some of their arguments and things that you'll find in uh, the Catholic Church, for example, arguments for the existence of God based on the observed order of nature and things of that kind. So um, that's there too, and it's all under the sort of umbrella of what we kind of conveniently call Hinduism, but it, it, in its origins, it's a lot of different, it's a collection of many diverse traditions. And so to your, back to your question, is it religious? Uh, it depends on how you define religion and it depends on where you find religion, right? So um, all Hindu schools of thought except one simply take it as a matter of, of uh, it's all practically assumed that there is such a thing as karma, there's such a thing as the process of rebirth. And for most schools of thought, the ultimate aim of human existence is to achieve moksha or liberation from uh, that. And that involves a process of ethical transformation, it involves rituals, and it involves meditative practices and the achievement of cognitive states. And so uh, because the overarching goal toward which much of it is directed is what we might want to define as a spiritual or religious goal. We might say, yes, a lot of Indian philosophy is religious. However, in the course of doing that, practically every area of human endeavor gets explored and examined and uh, uh, reflected upon. So uh, grammar, astronomy, mathematics, medicine, uh, uh, dramaturgy, right? Putting on a play, uh, architecture, uh, there, there is a an Indian equivalent of feng shui. Uh, there's something called vastu shastra, the placement of objects, right? The science of the placement of, of objects so that the energies are maximized and so on. So you get into a lot of these topics and uh, based on a traditional Western understanding of religion, it wouldn't be religious at all because you're talking about architecture or you're in the, not necessarily sacred architecture all of the time. It's like the, you know, how to put your house together. Uh, there, there's a way to do that, according to Indian philosophy. So um, it covers the entire range of human existence. And this is why when we speak about Hinduism, a lot of Hindus will say, it's not a religion, it's a way of life. Now, a person might object to that and say, well, if you're seriously religious, your religion is your way of life. Well, fine. But what most Hindus mean when they say that is, it's not only about these things that are obviously sacred. The whole range of your life, there are 
Hindu texts that describe, you know, just how to go about your daily routine. I mean, every little thing is, has been analyzed and 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 uh, debated and discussed. So it's kind of a science of life uh, when you look at Indian philosophy. So this is where it's interesting. So then this word of philosophy, <clears throat> then that's the part that now seems to be rubbing a little rawly or like a little crunchily against what you're describing. Yes. But if we accept, oh, some religious, some, some, now what you're describing sounds like a commonplace books or self-help or things that tell you how to lead your life, practical ethics. And again, it now yes. it's, it still seems to be wandering from what we consider philosophy. So then if people think about philosophy, I think in their heads, philosophy right. is either platonic dialogue, so entertaining back and forths, or rigorous, almost mathematical abstract studies trying to get to some abstract truth. Yes. Where does... Where does Indian philosophy sit in that world of trying to say what's philosophy and what's not? Right. Well, it, it encompasses both of those things that you described, right? So like if you read the Upanishads, for example, they you're very much in the world of something like platonic dialogue, right? They're conversations between teachers and students about the ultimate natures of uh, nature of things. Uh, many of them are poetic, though quite a few are also written in prose. And uh, though they are regarded as sacred texts by the subsequent tradition, uh, their aim really seems to be just to get at the true nature of things. Um, as you get, as you progress through time through Indian philosophy, you get much more of the very rigorous and abstract uh, argumentation and conversation that you are talking about. And one of the reasons I would argue for it being called philosophy is that it covers many of the same topics and questions that contemporary philosophy does: the nature of knowledge, the nature of consciousness. How do we know anything? How do you make a good argument? Um, what counts as evidence in an argument? Um, what is real? What does it mean for something to be real? How do we differentiate between what is real and what is unreal? Now, again, there's a kind of overarching purpose, which it's tempting to call religious, that is why all of this abstract conversation occurs. But in the course of the conversation, you get some extremely interesting and sometimes very contemporary and very relevant uh, uh, positions being articulated in Indian philosophy. So that's why I think it's very much worthwhile for Western philosophers to look into it because people are saying interesting things about topics that are puzzling philosophers even today. I would say where the, the biggest difference comes about is that it, there's been a conscious, as you said earlier, abstraction of philosophy from the realm of religion in the West right. because there's the assumption that if you have a religious worldview that is somehow very subjective and biased and un, you know unobjective, right? And why that should be the case is, is, a, is an unexamined assumption, I would say, of Western philosophy. My uh, idea about that is that it goes back to the Protestant Reformation, right? That there, um, when Christianity became many Christianities and became contested, and then when that actually endangered civilization in Europe, and there were religious wars, and uh, the way secularism eventually gets invented is societies decide, we're not going to fight about those things. You think what you think, I think what I think, and we'll get along, and we'll argue about things that we can come to some, you know, shared understanding of it. My, um, one of my favorite expressions of this is uh, when Thomas Jefferson says, uh, what does it matter to me whether my neighbor believes as I do or not? He says, uh, it neither breaks my leg nor picks my pocket. <laughs> as, as, as long as your belief doesn't impose on me, you know, you're not killing me because I think differently. You're not taking my property away because I think differently. Uh, think what you want, right? So secularism is born. And so there's, uh, there's yeah. that modern kind of tolerance. And I find it interesting. You, you sort of offhandedly mentioned, well, maybe there's all these interesting philosophical discussions that are happening here. Yes, there's an overarching spiritual or cosmological goal that people are seeking, but there's mm -hmm. interesting philosophy inside there. I feel like as secular society keeps marching along, it gets more uncomfortable about that. I think they regard any goal that is spiritual, religious, metaphysical as little suspect. And as you said, you're not, a, you can't be objective anymore. If your goal is affinity with Christ, union with Christ, if your goal is freedom, liberation, then you can't totally be objective with the rest of us seculars anymore. 
Right. Well, th that that's that's the way of thinking, but it actually conceals its own philosophical bias because uh, what is uh, widely regarded as kind of objective point of view in the West is actually a very specific line of thinking, which affirms that reality at its fundamental level is material, uh, non-conscious, non-purposeful, blind matter, right? And that is the view of one school of Indian philosophy. Uh, the materialists, they're called the Lokayatas, they're also called the Charvakas, and they believed this, and, and they argued for this, very widespread, very common view in the Western world. And it's sort of taken as the default position if you're an objective person that, right. well, we can all agree about the material world and then everything else becomes somewhat suspect or you have to argue for it. India, interesting, was somewhat the opposite. All the other schools of thought sort of ganged up on the Lokayatas <laughs> and said, now this is, this is not proper philosophy. Uh, and some of this has to do with the way the Lokayatas, at least the way they're presented as arguing. And we always have to be cautious here because we don't have very many Lokayata texts. So what we have are the way they're represented by people who wanted to refute them. That being said, the Indian schools of thought that we have more knowledge about are actually pretty good at representing one another's views when they're trying to refute them. That You don't see a lot of straw man argumentation in Indian philosophy. They really do try to, to go after what the other school of thought actually says. And according to the Lokayatas, they say, all we can know is what comes through our senses. Well, the other schools of thought have a field day with that. What about memory? So if I only know what comes through my senses, I only know what's happening right now to me. Uh, George Santayana called it the solipsism of the present moment. And this is the argument that's used against the Lokayatas. Uh, the other one is, is that this perspective is completely amoral. Right. The concept of dharma uh, is very important in most systems of Indian philosophy, that there is an order of life, an order of the universe, and part of that is the human order, how we ought to live and treat one another. And if there's no karma, that means the universe is not bringing about any consequences for our actions. So we can be completely amoral. Uh, there's no reason to be good. And if we lived like that, society would fall apart. So the Lokayata perspective is is uh, you know widely derided. So they uh, so the the materialists, the Lokayatas uh, or Charvakas as they're also known, uh, did a lot of uh, ridiculing of uh, the what they saw as the pretensions of the various uh, other systems of philosophy. And the, there there's some great texts where they talk about uh, and and if if you know what to look for, you know which schools of thought they're describing. They say. These guys paint things on their forehead and they wear orange robes or white robes and they shave their heads and they chant all of this nonsense that people can't understand. And that's how they make their living off of gullible people. And so uh, it's a very modern critique of religion. right? It's, it sounds like something you'd hear from Bill Maher. Uh, and uh, so then and they have a valid point the, uh, because this is something that happens in, in, in various cultures. And uh, there are even some uh, examples of Indian drama. Uh, comedies where uh, adherents of various sects are ridiculed in various ways. And uh, that kind of, it's a little bit of a tangent, but it, it allows me to say something else I want to mention about Indian yeah. philosophy. One reason it flourished, and you have so many different schools of thought debating each other in the classical period, is there was a lot of freedom of thought in India. And another bias we have in the West, and it's because of our Western history, uh, is that if someone has a religious worldview, they're going to be dogmatic, they're going to be narrow-minded, and if they can, they'll force it on you. Uh, if, if they came into power, you know, their, their way would become law, you know, it would be like the Taliban. And, and uh, ancient India, as deeply religious as India has been through the centuries, was not like that. There was an uh, incredible amount of freedom of thought, um, people from other countries would sometimes flee to India when they were being persecuted. We know that uh, both Jews and Christians left the Roman Empire and settled in southern India uh, in part to flee from persecution. Uh, the Zoroastrians in Iran, uh, many of them fled to India, became the Parsi community in India when they were fleeing from persecution. Because India was a place where 
you know, again, with, with a few exceptions through the centuries, uh, was generally free from uh, religious persecution and was very welcoming of, of religious diversity. Uh, and again, Why it, was that philo- what brought that philosophical flourishing? What brought that attitude? So uh, there, there was a, there's a really good uh, article about this uh, by a, a scholar of, of South Asian traditions called uh, Alexis Anderson. And he's written about how um, because there was so much diversity in, in South Asia, in, in what we now uh, call South Asia, uh, traditionally called India for, for much of history in the West, uh, was uh, the the various kingdoms uh, that existed uh, in in India had so much diversity that the rulers very wisely understood that if they tried to impose just one religious view or school of thought, there'd be widespread chaos. Right? You you when you have so many different schools of thought, uh, so many religions, you can't really make everybody do the same thing, or they'll rebel. And uh, there were therefore very few cases of religious persecution in, in uh, ancient times in India. There were a few. The one that stands out in my mind, there was a, a ruler in southern India, what's now called Tamil Nadu. Um, he was uh, a ruler of a dynasty that practiced the Shaiva tradition, which is one of the traditions of what we now call Hinduism. And the Jain community uh, suffered under that king and many Jains fled from Tamil Nadu and went into what's now the state of Karnataka, a little further to the north, uh, or north and west, really, of Tamil Nadu. And so, uh, you know, Jains left, and th- there, uh, there's a depiction on the a temple that this king built of Jain monks being impaled. Uh, there are scholars who doubt that that's a depiction of an actual historical event. It's it's. Probably the king saying, "This is what I would like to do to you," okay. um, but you know, it was not a friendly environment for for the Jains. But things like that are are the exception in the history of India. For the most part, you have rulers making proclamations of religious. Um, I, I wouldn't quite use the word tolerance, coexistence. Um, the Buddhist emperor Ashoka uh, very famously adopted Buddhism as his personal practice and school of thought, but in his edicts uh, that have been left behind for for history. Uh, He proclaims that uh, people should study all religions. Uh, He says all the various schools of thought teach good virtues. And if people follow them, they'll be good citizens. And this is something the king commends. And uh, so uh, the, the most controversial thing that he did in terms of religion was he banned the sacrifice of animals, which some sects performed in ancient times there's still a handful of places where this occurs uh, in India and in Nepal, but uh, you know, for the most part, this much more vegetarian kind of tradition has taken over. Uh, but uh, uh, King Ashoka said, you know, on certain holy days, especially that uh, you know, like the Buddha's birthday, there would be no animal sacrifice. Uh, but uh, he didn't. It's not clear that he banned it completely, and it's not clear that he had the same uniform policy throughout his realm. So I think there is a, a very deep understanding in India from a very early period that if you interfere too much with people's deeply held beliefs uh, and practices, they're going to uh, they're going to react badly to that. And so you want you want citizens who are uh, law abiding and, and getting along. And some of the traditions themselves, uh, and, and I point this out in my book, uh, actually hold up a certain ideal of pluralism as, as, as a good thing. Right? So a uh, very famous verse, of course, from the Rig Veda. So we're going back very, very uh, ancient times. Uh, which means truth is one or reality is one. The wise speak of it in many ways. And there's some debate about what that meant in its original context, but it's been widely taken to mean we all have different ways of expressing truth. Let let them all exist, let them all flourish. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, a famous uh, Vaishnav text uh, from the Hindu tradition, uh, Krishna says uh, in uh, the 11th verse of the fourth chapter, uh, all living beings, uh, in whatever way they approach me, thus do I receive them. All paths lead to me. And so that's kind of a religious inclusivism where, uh, well, whatever God you pray to or however you practice, you're going to Krishna, so it's okay. Uh, so that's uh, another uh, uh, 
way of articulating it. And of course, in the modern Hindu tradition, this has really been sort of propagated as a central uh, teaching of uh, Swami Vivekananda's welcome address uh, in uh, uh, the Chicago Parliament of World Religions back in 1893. Uh, this was the centerpiece, right? We preach universal acceptance. Uh, and again, uh, we, we, we want to be careful not to romanticize this or to suggest that, uh, you know, that there was no disagreement or argumentation, this intense disagreement and argumentation about philosophy. But this occurs against the backdrop of fairly wide agreement about a number of principles, about moral principles, uh, about the nature of existence. Uh, again, things like karma and rebirth are largely taken for granted. And uh, you know, the basic principles of what makes up a good life, there's some variation and there's some debate. But uh, And even in terms of karma, there's debate about what it is and how it happens. Uh, the Jains have a, almost a physics of karma, where you have karma particles and they're causing things to happen uh, to you. Uh, whereas in Buddhism, you have a more, more psychological interpretation of karma, that it is our tendencies that we keep repeating again and again. And so, uh, you know, the, within certain broad parameters, there's scope for, for debate. And so I think one reason that things were pretty peaceful in India, for the most part, at least in terms of religion and philosophy, was that, that this was understood, right? That there are sort of broad parameters of agreement. There's a Jain philosopher named Haribhadra. Uh, he could be quite critical of what other traditions taught. But in one of his texts, his uh, Yoga Drishti Samuchaya, this is his uh, collection of views on yoga. He says, uh, well, all of these traditions are talking about freedom from rebirth. They're talking about a blissful state. The virtues that they enjoin in order to achieve that state are all the same. And the name is different. Some call it Shiva, some call it Brahman, some call it Nirvana, but they're all talking about the same thing. So this is a very widely held view. And then uh, you also have a kind of inclusivist view of truth where, uh, and, and Swami Vivekananda puts this very well in the modern period, he says, we never move from falsehood to truth. We move from lower truth to higher truth. And so even the Lokayatas, even these materialists that everyone else kind of beat up on, verbally speaking, uh, were held to be correct about that aspect of reality that they were describing, right? That there is a material world, that it does have certain features which are described. The way the Lokayatas talk about the senses and how the senses work, this is widely accepted by the other schools of thought. And then the view is, well, but that's lower truth, right? They don't go beyond that. You need to go beyond that. So uh, what it shows us today, I think, is that there are models other than what we today think of as secularism that enable diversity to flourish. And uh, there are conditions where people can practice many different religions and, and follow many different ways of life or have no religion and still be part of the society and, and live in an untroubled way. And it's happened in a few other places around the world of uh, apparently Spain, uh, before the, the Catholic reconquest, was a place where Christians, Jews, and Muslims lived in relative harmony. Uh, and so India is also one of those places where uh, you could still have an overarchingly religious worldview, but it was not, uh, uh, it, it did not result in people being widely persecuted or uh, treated in a uh, tyrannical way on the basis of religious difference. So from my ignorant American upbringing, uh, my encounter with Indian philosophy has, again, it's sort of been Indian religion or right. Indian culture or yes. Indian history. And yes. philosophy is the part that sort of left out. So I wondered if, especially at the end here, we could think about some of the misconceptions people might have, the, the things that are barriers to people studying Indian philosophy more because I hear I, I um I took a course years ago online and the person really drew from uh India, China, ancient Greece, mod modern Europe, Africa and was trying to weave these things together but that is a very um uncommon approach to philosophy. Yes. Usually there's certain threads you're trying to build on certain greats or certain right. masters from master to master there's like this lineage and it's Eastern has their thing. Western has their thing. These can't, things can't come together. So I'm wondering yeah. for those who have not studied Indian philosophy, 
what do you think are the big barriers to appreciating it and incorporating it into their thinking? Okay, very good. So I think uh, one barrier is is terminology. And I mean that in a twofold sense. Uh, Highly technical work on Indian philosophy presupposes a knowledge of Sanskrit, basically. um, And some of the terms are literally untranslatable meaning there's not a, a there's not a one word english version of them so a very central concept of indian philosophy is pramana and you just have to learn the word pramana and start using it yourself in order to really understand what a pramana <laughs> is because if you try to translate it into english it it is the basis upon which we judge something to be true so sensory perception is a pramana I see it, I hear it, I taste it, I smell it, I therefore know it. Then you have logical inference. I'm not seeing that thing, but I'm seeing other things that are indicative of that thing. I see smoke rising from a hill, I can deduce that there's fire, right? So this is, uh, you know, the kind of scientific reasoning, right? Induction uh, from facts that are observed to facts that are not observed directly, but can be inferred, right? So there's that. And, uh, of course, the most controversial one of all, both within India and in the West, is the word of an authoritative person. I didn't see the fire, but my friend did, and he never lies, and he told me it was there, so I I can trust him that it's there. That becomes controversial when the debate is over, well, who's trustworthy? Is it the Buddha? Is it the Jinnah? That is the enlightened beings that that are um, acknowledged in the Jain tradition. Does it come from the Vedas, the ancient writings uh, that are sacred in what we now call the Hindu traditions? So, you know, who who is the authoritative person then becomes the debate. And there are therefore some schools of thought uh, that uh, reject the word of the authoritative person as a, uh, as a pramana. They'll say, well, you know, you really need to infer it for yourself or see it for yourself. And then there are other pramanas as well, because, they, you know, um, there's one uh, that is based on uh, the application of of verbal categories to observations. So I see this thing. It has four legs. It has fur. It has two horns. It makes a moo sound. It is a cow, right? And uh, so because, and of course, this is something else debated in Indian philosophy. Do we see cowness or do we infer and then impose cowness on an observed phenomenon. This is debated. I mean, this is something that schools of thought argue about. So, I mean, we're talking about very rigorous, very fine-tuned, you know, very, uh, it's kind of a derogatory term, but hair-splitting philosophy, uh, just as you would find in the West. So it is a very technical conversation in much the same way that Western philosophy is, but because it's carried out using other categories and somewhat different assumptions and modes of argumentation, that creates a barrier to understanding. And I think another one is, uh, yeah, the assumptions that we often make so that if it, if it does look religious in some fashion, then we import everything from Western religion onto it. Oh, well, they didn't agree with the Buddhists. Well, they must have persecuted the Buddhists. Like, well, not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> they argued with them, right? And, uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it, it's, it's not like the, the history of the West. So that creates some barriers. But, uh, and now, I, I don't know, maybe, I, I don't want to anticipate your next question or jump ahead too much, but I'm also thinking about what could be ways of overcoming the barriers of understanding. Correct. Because learning want... Sanskrit is, a, I mean, that's just an out. It's a problem we have, again, in, in yeah. the problem in Catholicism is, we're well, going to need to learn Latin and or learn Greek, Latin, right. or you're not going to do it. Judaism does pretty good with Hebrew by forcing some people, but most people don't understand it. They can speak exactly. it, but they don't have any idea what they're saying. And all of the aforementioned traditions are elite traditions. I, I have a good friend who is a Hindu monk. Uh, he's fairly well known uh, on, on YouTube, uh, gives some wonderful talks. And I was just chatting with him the other day, and he was telling me a story about a, a contemporary teacher of Indian philosophy. Someone in his audience asked what, uh, well, you know, we always say there are no stupid questions, but someone asked a ill-formed question and this other teacher said look if you don't know sanskrit if you have not studied all of the texts of this school of thought then 
you have no place in this conversation. <laughs> they basically said, go away, right? And so, and these were elite conversations in India. And I, I would say that's how I would differentiate Indian philosophy from Indian religion is that anyone can participate in ritual. Anyone can cultivate devotion to God uh, in various, in whatever form God is conceived to be. Uh, but uh, not everyone has the privilege and the intellectual equipment to to do this. So, so in that sense, it's the same barrier that you find to Western philosophy too. There are also people who look at Western philosophy. Oh, I can't understand that. Right. Uh, using words like ontology or epistemology, you might as well be speaking Sanskrit, right? For many people. I think one way of overcoming the barrier, now this is more helpful for people who are already interested in philosophy, but in its origins, Indian philosophy is quite akin to and is talking about many of the same issues as, and may even have been in dialogue with ancient Greek philosophy. I was thinking that so, thing when you were talking about things, yes. Yeah. So if, if you read the Upanishads, and if you're also familiar with Plato and pre-Plato, pre-Socratic philosophy, it's very much the same thought world. And of course, Alfred North Whitehead said the whole history of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> many of the great ideas, uh, even, even, if, even if people were rejecting Plato, Plato defined much of the Western philosophical conversation. And if you read Plato with some knowledge of Indian philosophy, he sounds very Indian. Uh, there's a lot there that echoes what's going on in India. So it's you, call, if, you called out in your teaser, you called out skepticism. And I feel like that is a primary platonic virtue. It is. It is. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, Indian traditions encourage uh, skepticism, right? Um, some, especially as you get a little later and, and you get into like past the year 1000 AD, you start to get traditions that are more what I would call avowedly theological, right? They occur within traditions of religious practice. And they are centered on the question of the nature of the divine and the nature of devotion, uh, bhakti, as it's called. And uh, so they are, you know, theological, I think, in many respects. But then you're talking about also things like Sankhya, for example, which uh, is an analysis of the relationship between consciousness and the material world. And yes, it, it ostensibly is pursued with the goal of moksha in mind. But it's uh, it reads as a very detached kind of, you know, enumeration of, well, these are the elements and none of them are conscious by themselves. Consciousness is something separate. And this is what Sankhya wants to emphasize. And uh, how then do we account for things like motion and dynamism? Well, that's part of the material continuum, but you've still got consciousness over here separate. And uh, so uh, it's, it's an analysis that one could imagine uh, a modern thinker coming up with. Right? It, it, it's, it's not incompatible with, and it might even inform uh, some contemporary Western uh, conversations. Well, you've got a well, cat. Very fond I of <laughs> Interrupted Very fond by of cat. cat. Yeah. I, I did want to ask, uh, one of the things you get in Western philosophy is named thinkers. Now, it gets complicated when they're thousands of years ago, who exactly wrote it or whether it truthfully represents what that teacher said is harder right. to say and they work on that. But they're sort of named thinkers that run through the centuries and they influence each other along the way. If if somebody goes, you mentioned, you, you mentioned a couple during this discussion, is the best thing in delving into Indian philosophy, you really should do it with books like yours, which are sort of overviews that will touch on things or are there thinkers people go into? And if so, who are these if you threw out some names, who are these great thinkers through the centuries? People oh, might yeah. say, oh, I know that, or they need to study that person. And there definitely are great thinkers. And, and I, I, I highlight some of them in the, in the book. Okay. Um, the issue is that th there are great thinkers, uh, and there are also schools of thought whose texts were uh, are anonymous, right? We, we don't yeah. necessarily know who wrote them. Um, and so, you know, you, you get both of those things happening. Uh, so like I talk about the Sankhya school, but you know, from Sankhya, there, there is a, there's a, a thinker named Ishwara Krishna, and uh, he's one of the authors of one of the core Sankhya texts. Uh, you have the, the, the founders of, of the traditions, uh, some of whom may be semi-legendary, but someone started uh, the, these lineages. 
So Kapila, the founder of Sankhya, Patanjali, the founder of yoga, um, very, there are a number of very famous Buddhist thinkers, uh, apart from the Buddha himself. Nagarjuna, I'd say, is easily the most famous. My favorite. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and his philosophy can be deployed in a skeptical manner. Uh, at the same time, he's a Buddhist. So the ultimate aim of his skepticism is to get all the concepts out of the way so we can experience reality, right? So, uh, and so that, uh, Nagarjuna is a very important thinker. Shankara, very important thinker, the Advaita Vedanta school of thought. I would say Ramanuja uh, from the Vishishta Advaita school of thought, uh, not as much is written about him uh, in the West as Shankara, but in terms of influence on religious life in India, he's probably been even even more influential because he has such an emphasis on devotion uh, as an important category uh, in his thinking. Uh, of course, one of, one of my uh, central uh, uh, topics of interest in my own scholarship is the Jain tradition. So, they, I mean, a whole lot of Jain philosophers, Kunda Kunda Haribhadra, whom I mentioned before, Yashovijaya, who's very interesting. He lives just at the cusp of modernity, um, passed away in the 18th century. So, uh, but he's he's still counted as a classical Indian philosopher. He's still in that mode. Um, numerous uh, thinkers from the Nyaya school. You have uh, thinkers like Udayana, uh, for example, uh, makes arguments for, for the existence of God. Uh, the Mimansa school, you'll have figures like Kumarila and Jaimini who put forward you know, their various understandings of, uh, of that system of thought. Uh, and uh, countless others, you know, people like Vachaspati Mishra, for example, who well, was interesting because he was an adherent of a particular school of thought, but he wrote philosophical commentaries on other, on on the root texts of other systems. So it shows that kind of uh, cosmopolitanism in Indian philosophy that uh, uh, we don't associate with religiosity in the West. I want to close with the question because you presented them there so interesting to me because we do have the philosophy in the West. And as you're as you're talking about justifying the existence of great philosophers have spent tremendous time in their in their thinking wrestling with their idea of God. And it's usually Christian God because many of the great thinkers are Christian and come out of this Christian tradition, the ones that are studied. In India today, modern materialist philosophy, so philosophy that tries to eschew all the ceremonial magic, that tries to cut away from the cosmology and the metaphysical. Right. Is that alive? Is there a tradition that runs a materialist philosophy today in India that is uniquely Indian? Uh, there is. It is not historically continuous with the ancient Lokaya okay. <laughs> tradition that I mentioned. It is... Uh, a very specifically Indian reception of an interpretation of Marxism, uh, which has been very popular in India since uh, since before independence, because uh, during the colonial period, uh, the Indian independence movement cut across a wide ideological swath, right? So um, you have uh, militants of various kinds, right? We, we think of Gandhi and the nonviolent movement but there was a violent movement, really several violent movements for Indian independence that also uh, had their ideological underpinnings. Um, you have what is often regarded as uh, today, it's, it's put in, even in India, they use this very Western terminology, uh, sort of right-wing thought, uh, the movement that's called Hindutva or Hindu nationalism, which is not in one sense really something derived from Hindu teaching, but it's more of a of a political response to a perception that the Hindu community is under threat, right? So, uh, so you have that, but then you also have the left. So uh, from uh, even before Indian independence, there were Marxists in India and there were people who found Marx very appealing and uh, they held views uh, in many ways, they were parroting the views of some Westerners. They said, India is backward because we have all this religion. And so we get rid of that, you know, we'll be progressive. And so um, Marxist governments uh, have at various times been in power in uh, the state of Kerala in the South and in West Bengal uh, very famously for many decades. Uh, and so, uh, yes, I, I would say that is to some extent, it's a vibrant tradition. The reason I'm, I'm not saying that in a sort of full-throated way is uh, politically, they're kind of on the run nowadays. Uh, the, the Hindu right is very much ascendant. Uh, so 
uh, but you still have Marxists and uh, and you have people who are very um, suspicious about anything that they regard as superstition, right? A traditional religion. Uh, at the same time, you have religious folks who are very interested in science and you'll have people arguing that Vedanta and quantum theory are in perfect sync and, you know, that sort of, the, so, so there's that philosophical perspective as well. So that, that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of the landscape of contemporary Indian philosophy. So there's skepticism, uh, but there's also a kind of uh, a wholehearted embrace of science as uh, a kind of companion and support to what in the West we might call a religious perspective. It's all over I the think, place. <laughs> I think my closing comment slash question for you is from the from this very beginning, I think you started talking about these analogies don't work perfectly. And I can feel myself, I think the human brain, and I assume Indians in India also, when they project out, they think, do you have this? That's like us. It reminds me of the Greek and Roman thing where the Romans would march around and be like, well, who do you worship? And they'd say, well, we worship that. And they're like, well, that's kind of like, we have something like that. So yeah. that's fine. No problem. This, this learning by analogy, when you learn something, it feels, I can feel it during the course of this conversation. It is like my wrestling with Judaism, which was brand new to me. Analogy gives way to a deeper understanding. This initial analogy, people's first encounter with Indian philosophy or Indian religion, it's all by analogy. Like you said, the sacred book, the church, and it's true, but it's not true enough. So if we stop at analogy and just say, this is fine, I understand enough. You have something like I do. That's as far as I need to go. This deeper understanding is, I don't know, it seems better. Maybe it's like that lower truth, higher truth. Uh, it is, yeah, it's, 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 it's the higher truth, right? It's, it's the, or, or if we want to switch the metaphor, it's the deeper truth, right? That, yeah. uh, and uh, once you do learn some Sanskrit terminology and you start to see the intricacies of these traditions, you start to appreciate that. And you know, one thing I mentioned in my teaser that you, that you opened with, you know, this question of God, well, what is God even? And uh, if, we if we define God as the one who created the universe from nothing, by that definition of God, all forms of Indian philosophy are atheistic because the idea that the universe even has a beginning is not widely accepted in Indian philosophy. There are creation stories in the Vedas, but the later tradition interprets those as being about the onset of a cosmic cycle. And there was a universe before that, and a universe before that, and a universe before that, and there'll be another after and another after. That old story you heard about, you know, turtles all the way down, that comes from India, right? So uh, so the idea that, you know, you know Aristotle, the, the, this kind of becomes bedrock Western philosophy, uh, at least within religious circles. There has to be a first cause. Indian philosophy says, does there? Really? Why? <laughs> uh, you know, in the West, they say, well, that'll lead to an infinite regression. And from an Indian perspective, yeah. So there's an infinite regression. It's infinite. It goes on. The, the, um, you know, Krishna says in the Gita, never, there, never was there a time when you and I did not exist. So, yeah, it goes back forever. So... Um, Many people will say that Jains are atheists. They don't believe in a creator God. However, I've heard Jains use the term God. I've been told, God bless you by Jains. And if you dig a little deeper, God for a Jain means the soul and its pure nature once it becomes liberated. And when you become enlightened, that means essentially you become God. You don't become the creator of the universe because there is no such thing. But you become a center of pure bliss, pure consciousness, pure awareness, and lacking in any desire whatsoever. That is divinity from a Jain perspective. So many Jains will say, no, we are theists. We just define God differently. Right? Uh, similar thing you could say about Buddhism. No creator God in Buddhism. But after you start talking about Buddha nature in Mahayana Buddhism and an infinite consciousness and a non-dual awareness, you're very much in the same realm or a similar realm to the Vedanta philosophy of Hinduism, which also talks about non-dual awareness and everything ultimately is an infinite consciousness, which till we become enlightened, we can perceive as a God outside of us. But then when we become enlightened, we realize that that, that God is also our very self in its, in its true nature. So it kind of depends on how you define God. Uh, and then there are a handful of Indian traditions that have a concept of God that would fit pretty comfortably with most Western religions if you also incorporate karma and rebirth and some of those other elements. So it's, it's, um, and, and it's interesting because 
that's a big divide in Western philosophy and not so much in Indian philosophy. It's one of many debated issues. It's yeah, it's led. You see these mystical threads. What you're talking about feels like a fully fledged, developed, evolved uh, stream of thinking that in the other religions that presuppose the first cause prime mover, these are heretical, dangerous concepts that you could be God. They jump to the, that means you think you're the prime mover and you're like, not quite the same way. But uh, when exactly. those threads come out, those people are absolutely attacked because it's yeah. threatening to the concept. Exactly. Exactly. So you'll find a Christian polemical literature that says, well, Hinduism is committing the sin which Lucifer committed. He wanted to be God. And they're saying you can be God. It's like, well, it's saying you are Brahman. Maybe God's not a good translation of the term Brahman. Maybe that's another one of those intranslatable terms. So, uh, again, it, it kind of all goes back to what you mean. And uh, of the people who are called the new atheists in the West, my personal favorite is Sam Harris. Okay. And he he says, he says, everybody is an atheist vis-a-vis -vis some definition of God, right? So he then, like if he's speaking to a Christian audience, he says, you all don't believe in Poseidon. So you are Poseidon atheists, right? <laughs> and so uh, it, it's, it, and if you, if you bring that into Indian philosophy, then it, it makes sense. So uh, you can find theism in most of the traditions if you're willing to be flexible about what God means. But if we're very rigid about the definition of God, well, maybe one or two traditions at most that adhere to that. But most would be atheistic on that understanding. Well, now I can hardly wait to read your book. <laughs> <laughs> when is it? So when it, I think it's coming out third quarter. Is it September 2023? What's the... Well, that's the goal. I, and okay. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to hear back from the peer reviewer, uh, depending on how, how radically I'm asked to revise it um, and how much time I have to do that. Uh, my aim is for it to well in in, in my field uh the uh I, i'm in both philosophy and religion uh, the conference i typically attend each year professionally is the american academy of religion which meets in november so my aim would be for for there to be a nice stack of these at the bloomsbury stall in the book display at the aar in uh, november uh yes. so I, i'm hoping it'll come out in in the uh, at, at the end of the by the end of the you know before the end of this year and it's been in the works for a long long time and uh we would have to do another whole episode if you wanted me to explain how over 10 years you know why why it took 10 years to write this book and 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 you know i hear about people who took ages to write their books in terms of actual writing time it's probably more like six months to a year but okay. you have all the rest of life that intervenes, including other writing projects. You know, you you'll have the, the same the same publisher uh, wanted me to uh, do a book on Hinduism in America, which I'm very pleased to say got a, a book award at the AAR last year. I'm I'm very pleased with how that book has has done. Uh, but that meant that the Indian philosophy book was put aside for quite a while. Right. Uh, that's really been the main reason. But uh, yeah, hopefully, not, you know, in the, barring any disaster, it's out before this year is over, ideally by yeah, late September or October. That would be perfect. Okay, last question, because you did, you straddle uh, philosophy and religion. And for instance, I was talking to somebody, a sociologist who, she's like, oh yeah, sociology is, she didn't use this, but the analogy, <clears throat> redheaded stepchild that gets kicked around, it's kind of vague. Uh, Do you feel... If you go into philosophy, but you have this religious underpinning, I feel like some people must want to kick you around about this. You're too much religion and not enough philosophy. Do you feel like it's a peanut butter chocolate thing where you're not um, enough for either group sometimes or what? Uh, it, it depends. It depends, okay. right? It depends, it depends on which philosophers you're engaging with. Okay. Uh, for example, I'm going to be speaking at Rutgers University uh, in late March about Jain philosophy. And one of the things that the, the scholar, uh, Anil Mundra, the excellent scholar of Jain philosophy, uh, one of the things he uh, conveyed to me was that uh, they, they want to kind of get this dialogue going about Indian philosophy with the philosophers, that there are interesting and worthwhile issues worth engaging in Indian philosophy that, that count as philosophy and that that, that should be done. So... Um, in my experience, though, I, I think I tend to run around in circles that are already persuaded of that. So, okay. you know, like if, if I publish uh, something in, say, philosophy East and West, I mean, the people who read that, they're already thinking this way. Um, I do find that uh, in some respects, it's easier to present this material in the world of religious studies because it, 
Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about you know, one of the subfields of the study of religion is the philosophy of religion, which is what my PhD is actually in. So there's a place for, say, a course on Indian philosophy in a religious studies curriculum, which I, I teach Indian philosophy here at Elizabethtown. I hope to use this book in that course. And uh, so it's um, uh, it's something that I think is, is sort of readily welcomed. There's a Hindu philosophy unit at the American Academy of Religion. There are Buddhist philosophy or Buddhist constructive thought units at the um, American Academy of Religion. Uh, in the American Philosophical Association, I don't think there's as much, uh, okay. but uh, but I think it's there. And the, you know, there have been, uh, there's a really good uh, scholar of Indian philosophy, Janardan Ganeri, who has his own introduction to Indian classical philosophy, which is quite good. And he's made a case for not only Indian philosophy, but think making philosophy more global, thinking of as world philosophy. Because for those of us who are steeped in either Indian philosophy or you have people who are steeped in Chinese philosophy, you have people delving into things like African philosophy, Latin American philosophy, um, the, the standard, you know, philosophy conversation seems very white, very European. <laughs> uh, and of course, all of it globally is still very male, right? Even if we're talking about India or China. Um, and the, I think our whole society... Uh, is wanting to move towards a, a more inclusive way of thinking. And you know, people's various types of difference, some of the differences that we might be tempted to regard as, well, that's irrelevant to ultimate truth. Well, not necessarily. You know, Who you are and what your life experience is is going to shape how you'll, you'll approach these things. And it's worth collecting as many perspectives as possible. That's my own bias, right? The, I want to. I want to know it all. I want to hear from the the hardcore skeptics and from the uh, absolutely convinced religious folks of of all branches. You know, I, I want to hear all of it because uh, this is, I think, how we learn and, and grow. And it's also part of how we uh, create a more habitable world where we understand each other more. I really believe in that old idea that uh, uh, ignorance is finally what gives rise to fear and then to prejudice, to hatred. And uh, we've plenty of that in the world. So more understanding uh, can only help, I think.